and welcome to a very special EWTN bookmark. I am Doug Keck, your host. Our very special guest, the past Supreme Knight, Carl Anderson. We'll talk to him about his latest work, These Liberties We Hold Sacred, Essays on Faith and Citizenship in the 21st Century, published by Square One Publishers, available through the EWTN Religious Catalog, EWTNRC.com. And a, a very nice welcome to you, uh, past Supreme Knight, Carl Anderson. Thank you so much for joining us. Well, thank you for the invitation. It's always great to be with you, Doug. Now, this uh, is another book you, you've, you've put out recently. How many books have you actually written over the years? Well, let's see. This is my third, and then I co-authored two others and edited two others. So I guess I'm up to about seven these days. Okay. Now, this particular book is a series of essays and speeches uh, having to do over the years while you were serving as Supreme Knight, correct? Yes, that's right. Yeah. So, so I took some of the what I thought were more important uh, speeches and various areas uh, around the theme of religious liberty to put, bring them together into the, you know, current discourse that's going on in the country today. Right. You mentioned uh, in the beginning any acknowledgments, a couple of things I wanted. For four years, I had the privilege of serving as a member of the White House staff of President Ronald Reagan. How did that prepare you for your work with the Knights and even to your work in dealing with uh, really a focus on, in some ways, religious liberty here in the United States and basically globally, especially for Christians who are under oppression? Well, working in the White House with President Reagan uh, was really formative in the sense that even during his time, pro-life and religious liberty were two great issues that we were working on. I had the privilege of helping to develop the Mexico City policy. Mm -hmm. I worked on uh, on the confirmation of Antonin Scalia to the Supreme Court. I also worked on uh, the diplomatic recognition of the Vatican and our mm -hmm. first formal ambassador uh, to the Vatican. Mm -hmm. So those ways uh, uh, were really engaged in the great faith and culture issues of the 1980s. Mm -hmm. And that uh, kind of prepared me for how to engage government as uh, an organization, the head of an organization. So I think uh, I learned a lot from President mm -hmm. Reagan, also learned uh, how to be committed to principle and uh, to be have a certain amount of flexibility at the same time. I mean, there was always uh, sort of a criticism of President Reagan that he had a simplistic view of government. Mm -hmm. But uh, when you compared uh, what that meant in terms of the effectiveness of the White House, we all knew what President Reagan's philosophy was. The question was, how do we implement it? How do we get there? And so uh, it made working for him in that sense very easy, as opposed to a president who is constantly re-examining what his position should be. Right. In the beginning of the introduction, you have a quote here from Thomas Jefferson. Can the liberties of a nation be thought secure when we have removed their only firm basis, a conviction in the minds of the people that these liberties are the gifts of God? You go on to say, has the American experiment failed to such an extent that it needs to be radically reconstituted? What say you? Well, that was the whole theme of the book and the title of the book. I originally wanted these liberties and then directly quoting Thomas Jefferson. Mm -hmm. Of course, Jefferson is is the one that the secularists today always quote. But uh, you see, he was a man who believed in the natural law. He believed that our uh, rights are not the gift of government. They are gifts of the creator mm -hmm. and therefore uh, inalienable. 
And that is the foundation that led to the American War of Independence, led to the Declaration of Independence, the Constitution, and has led us through most of our history and what has made American exceptionalism so exceptional. Mm -hmm. And today we see a, a retreating from that, kind of a cancel culture uh, of the religious heritage, and I would say the natural mm -hmm. law heritage and inherent uh, rights, and we see right. it so often in the current debate on religious liberty. Mm -hmm. Through, throughout the, the many essays and the speeches you gave, one of the things you really harken back to in your, is the history, the founding, etc. But isn't the problem we have today is the lack of understanding of history of so many people today in the United States? Certainly the true. And uh, one of the um, one of my essays, which is actually my speech to the National Catholic Prayer Breakfast, mm -hmm. where I talked about the uh, Martin Luther King Memorial in Washington, D.C. I think there are 16 quotes of Dr. King on that memorial, and none reference God. Mm -hmm. Now, you have to look pretty hard <laughs> in the speeches of Martin Luther King to find something that doesn't have uh, the Creator can't say free at last, free at last, thank God Almighty we're free at last, can't use that one. Uh, it, there's so many ways in which we have been erasing uh, the religious heritage from our country. It's what Alexander Solzhenitsyn called the amputation of the national memory. Mm -hmm. And when you do that, you destroy the unity of the nation, you destroy the national identity. And I think that's part of the reason why right. we see so much division violence in the country, right. that those underlying values and principles are being eroded, and right. intentionally so in many cases. Well, you make the point that, in, in fact, you say that we should demand the fulfillment of the promises made in the Declaration of Independence and Constitution, and that doing so from a religious basis is not only appropriate but wholly consistent with the original vision of American founding. And that's where you get to the stickler point with a lot of these secularists, which is they say, well, I, I'm all for looking back at the Constitution, but there's a separation of church and state. Isn't that what uh, Jefferson said? In fact, you, you started your book off basically quoting him. Well, uh, Jefferson said that, but he didn't write it into the Declaration of Independence, and he didn't write it into the Constitution. In mm -hmm. fact, uh, we have to, ought to ask ourselves, why is the free exercise of religion the first right articulated in our Bill of Rights? Uh, before freedom of the press, before freedom of speech, before freedom of assembly, to the right to petition your government, the right against self-incrimination, on and on and on. Religious liberty is the first right, and that's because the framers of the Constitution understood that it is the most, the ultimate and most important questions that any human being can, can address. Mm -hmm. And so they wanted to safeguard that and protect it. And we turn away from that at our peril because well. Jefferson was right. It is the only firm foundation for all the other liberties we enjoy. Right. You say, far from threatening to wall off faith from the public policy of the country, as envisioned by some progressive secularists today, the country's founders saw faith as actually critical rather than undermining America's civic enterprise. Earlier, you said the idea was simply was not simply that the government was prohibited from imposing particularly denominational creed, but also that the government was only functional in a situation where it governed those who had religious and moral commitments. Well, that harkens back to John Adams' famous quote that uh, 
this constitution is only uh, prepared for and can be enjoyed by a people of deep religious and moral conviction. So uh, that's part of the very DNA of American uh, heritage and experience. And I think, you know, my experience at the Knights of Columbus with Father McGivney, uh, very important in his approach and the Knights of Columbus approach and Catholic approach in the 19th century when we came in as an immigrant people mm -hmm. uh, facing great prejudice and bigotry, we could have retreated into a ghetto. Some, mm -hmm. some uh, religious minorities, some ethnic minorities did that. Mm -hmm. uh, we did not as Catholics, and Father McGivney sort of, with the Knights of Columbus, in a way, led the way. Wow. He said, no, we're going to seize our religious liberty, we're going to make a difference in society, we're going to do it on principles of charity, unity, and brotherhood, and if you think about it, those are the kinds of values that bind society together in a humane way. When you turn your back on those, you end up with the kind of division and violence we're seeing today in America. So very important, we protect what we value. And so it's important that Catholics make an authentic and strong witness in society mm -hmm. to bring good values good works into society. Well, you, hearkening back to the Massachusetts Knights of Columbus banquet in 1895, the statement was made, we believe that the better Catholics we are, the better citizens we are also. Inspired by this spirit, we are tolerant to the opinions of others and demand like toleration from others. And that's where you get into this kind of uh, semi, going back to the know-nothings and the clan attitude, which is that there's only a series of acceptable uh, toleration, so to speak. Uh, you need to tolerate what I believe, but I have no reason that I have to tolerate what you believe. How did we end up here? Well, I think we ended up here by um, losing sight of what the framers of the Constitution knew was so important, and that is the sanctity of conscience and the interaction so that uh, you have a critical discourse that helps you develop a critical conscience and a well-informed conscience. Uh, that's what we're seeing. Instead of critical thinking, mm -hmm. we're seeing uh, political correctness. So uh, that is really, in, in many ways, contrary to the fundamental Christian insight mm -hmm. of having an authentic relationship and seeking the truth. Mm -hmm. Now you say each speech or essay in this book had a path for change in mind rather than simply being a record related to particular moments in time. Therefore, I invite you to view this book as representing a belief in the promises made by our country's founding documents and a demand that these promises be kept, as you said earlier. Why did you differentiate with the idea of a, a path versus a record? Well, I, I use uh, Dr. Reverend Martin Luther King, I already mentioned him once, but I use him as an example in the book of a Christian who actually changes society, looks at a promise made by the uh, framers of our Constitution and the Declaration of Independence, that we haven't met that, mm -hmm. we haven't fulfilled that promise, but here's a path, a Christian path forward, not a, not a path of violence, mm -hmm. not a path of hatred or revenge, but a path, uh, he talked about the courage to love, and what a Christian change of society, building a society. Now, I think that has real meaning for Catholics today. We cannot say 
that Catholics today in America are less empowered than African Americans were in the 1950s, mm -hmm. right? And look at the tremendous change they were able to, to lead the country toward because they were determined, they had great leaders, and they had Christian principles and a Christian path forward. If it had been just violence and hatred and revenge, mm -hmm. it would not have built the kind of society that we have today. Right. And that's what I think is a good model for Catholics. We have tremendous uh, things we can offer our society. We have to have the courage and the commitment to move forward in a, in a Catholic Christian way. Now, you point out the book addresses uh, areas simply not of great concern for American Catholics, but areas of great concern for the entire nation because of the great consequences that uh, not addressing these issues are. We, we're seeing the results of some of that. We see the future. And you break it down into uh, about five sections in the book itself. And the first section, as you alluded to earlier, is domestic religious freedom, conscience, and secularism. And you talk about in, in one of those particular chapters, one of those talks, the next great awakening. What were you hoping for? Well, I, I had in mind uh, what really has happened in the Catholic Church in it and our country since I would, I would say the 1979 visit of St. John Paul II to America and then the subsequent visits of uh, Pope Benedict and Pope Francis. I was on the mall in Washington in 1979 when John Paul II stood in front of the nation's capital and he said, when, when life is assaulted, threatened before birth, we will stand up and say, mm -hmm. that is not right. When the poor are disadvantaged and neglected, we will stand up and defend them. When marriages and the family. And as I listened to him, I said, think, this is a dramatic change. Mm -hmm. This is a tremendous dramatic change of what the church is going to mean in America, what Catholics are going to mean in America moving forward in the next several decades. So I think the next Great Awakening mm -hmm. might not be a lot of big signs of it today, mm -hmm. but I think if, if more Catholics take up that challenge, and it was repeated by Pope Benedict and by Pope Francis, to make an authentic witness on human rights, but also on these values, like I've spoken earlier, charity, unity, brotherhood, uh, we can have a, a Great Awakening. We've had it in our country before. Mm -hmm. Now, for many years, uh, especially the Knights of Columbus, and I think uh, something that you, you really spearheaded was in dealing with the pro-life movement and, and the, the machines uh, that were sent to the various, uh, uh, you know, pro-life outlets uh, to show people that, you know, this really is a baby. That was one of the early ones that really, and then, then later on it seemed like you also then focused greatly on what you have in Section 2, international religious freedom, and really dealing with, as you said, the Knights of Columbus was and continues to be a key advocate and charitable support for religious minorities, including Christians, but for other persecuted religious minorities there as well. Why, why did you see that as another important issue to deal with? Well, I think there's a, a tremendous connection between <clears throat> the witness being offered by persecuted Christians today around the world, especially in places like Iraq and Syria, uh, other places in the Middle East, and now as we're seeing in, in places like Nigeria. Very important for us um, is not just Catholics, it's mm -hmm. cops, it's Orthodox Christians as well. Very important for us because they live really on a periphery where tomorrow, there could be another attempted genocide. Mm -hmm. 
or a terrorist act against them. And yet they have a profound uh, sense of discipleship and sense of witness. And I think uh, whatever material aid we can provide them, Mm -hmm. we should continue to provide them, do more. And what they give us is the tremendous value of their witness Mm -hmm. and an authentic Christianity that is humble, but nonetheless strong. And that's, that's so very important today. Right, and those were sonogram machines that I was thinking of. Section yeah. three, respect for life, which also goes into that, but near the end of that you say yourself that the section ends with a discussion of suffering, a factor that contributes to how the quote-unquote throwaway culture defends abortion as a necessity along with euthanasia, the maltreatment of the elderly, the people with disabilities, and even suicide. And here we are in the COVID period, we look at what happened in, in the nursing homes, Talk about throwaway culture and the high amount of suicides that happened during the same period. Well, we cannot uh, uh, reject the fundamental insights and the fundamental revelation of Christianity of the great sanctity of each human being and not expect that to have dramatic consequences in things like, in areas like the treatment of uh, the elderly in nursing homes during the COVID uh, pandemic. Uh, what, we, what we decided with the ultrasound machines, and, and now we have close to 1,500 right. of them. They probably save one or two lives a year, right. a week. And therefore, we're probably saving here 100,000 babies from abortion a year through this one program. So I'm I'm sure we've saved a million Mm -hmm. so far. Um, And I I can't tell you how moving it is to encounter a young mother Mm -hmm. who says, when I found out I was pregnant, I thought my life had ended. I thought my life had ended and I had no option but abortion. Mm -hmm. And then I saw my baby and she'll hold up her baby now and say, this is the best thing that's happened in my life. Mm-hmm. So you see uh, the gift that that is and to help people see the reality of what is actually being done. And that, that's maybe one of the worst parts of the 50 years of abortion has been the repeated lies about what abortion really is. Right. And so uh, we helped overcome that by showing women the truth. And I think one of the things too that the Catholic Church has a great insight to is is the uh, is how suffering can be used, and how mm-hmm. it can be offered up, and also how the suffering when you're going through it as the caretaker, you're you're being pruned yourself. This is part of the equation. This is part of that suffering aspect. Is is how you then become a better person. And and a lot of families, myself, uh, having a child with some disabilities. Uh, you, you know, which sounds on the surface like a major problem. And it's not that it's not a lot of work and it doesn't bring some suffering, but the joy is immense. Well, I think it was Pope Benedict who said, the world offers you comfort, but you're called to greatness. Mm-hmm. And I think by that, he doesn't mean you're going to make a big salary or be be uh, privileged in some way, but you're, you're called to moral greatness. And that that requires you to do things you would not do necessarily, given your own choice. Right. Um, and the moral greatness that comes in doing that. Uh, and we saw that with Father McGivney's beatification, a tremendous miracle, uh, which happened to a child uh, before birth, mm-hmm. was discovered by an ultrasound machine, and was actually uh, a boy who uh, was um, suffering with Down syndrome. Right. 
And so uh, you couldn't ask for a more pro-life signal right. as to uh, what building a culture of life for Catholics really means than, than that. Absolutely. In section four, transcending partisanship, speaking to the violent protest, election rancor, political polarity Im impasses for the last decade, you, you talk about a, a genuine civic involvement towards a change. Do you think it's possible, considering it seems like uh, both sides are getting farther and further apart, that bridging that gap seems to be more and more difficult? Well, it seems to me we have to, again, make an authentic Catholic witness, and we have to, I've, a wise man once said, if you want to get something you haven't had before, you have to do something that you haven't done before. Mm -hmm. So I think we need to re-examine just how we uh, relate to the various political parties and political candidates and uh, articulate a Catholic position. Mm -hmm. And instead of, well, maybe this party's a little bit more on balance, uh, Catholic position, or maybe this election it's this party, mm -hmm. articulate what are our real priorities as Catholics, and then say, that's how we're going to vote. Mm -hmm. And if enough Catholics would do that, okay, maybe this year it's pro-life. Mm -hmm. Maybe next year it's our next election, it's going to be immigration. Mm -hmm. But uh, the current situation, we've been working on pro-life for 50 years. Mm -hmm. We've been working on immigration for almost as long a period of time. What, where, where have we come up with a solution? We should have solved those problems by now. Catholics have the ability to do it because no political party can suddenly lose five or ten percent of the Catholic vote and win. Right. So uh, you go into you go into half a dozen key states and you flip five or ten percent of the Catholic vote. No political party can stand that. Right. They may they may scream for one election, they may scream for two elections, but. Uh, what party can consistently lose right. half a dozen senators, 25, 30 congressmen each election cycle and continue uh, on that path? They have to change. I think, think thinking a little bit more different, uh, more differently, okay? Right. <laughs> That's why I have an editor for my book. <laughs> uh, but, you know, we need to, we need to reassess Mm -hmm. where we're going in the country and what kind of a contribution we can make as Catholics and what we really stand for and what we're going to say we're not going to stand for among various politicians. That doesn't mean you're being overly partisan. Mm -hmm. means more, you're, I think, you're being prophetic. We have a responsibility to engage with every administration, with every government, but the terms on which we do so ought to be Catholic right. terms. Mm -hmm. Right. Now, in, in section five, the last section, love and society, you talk about the ideologies of the last two centuries is explored with a specific eye towards how they targeted the family. You go on to say the results of family breakdown on children, as well as more specific analysis of the material and spiritual contributions of grandparents draw out these themes in concrete terms. Why was the family targeted? Well, I think it's targeted both by the libertarians on one side and by the socialists on the other side. Libertarians like John Stuart Mill mm -hmm. argued, for example, that um, the family is a limiter on individual freedom, especially for men, and that they give up their freedom because they have responsibilities for their family. On the other hand, the socialists say oh, the family is a principle of individuality. And so if we're going to build the new socialist person, uh, we can't have the individual families giving pe uh, people 
uh, independent genetics, uh, environment, heredity, and moral upbringing. Mm -hmm. So it gets attacked from both sides. And uh, the beauty of the church's teaching mm -hmm. is it posits the family, the individual, with all his unrepeatable individuality, but explains how to fulfill that individuality, uh, it requires a community, mm -hmm. a communion of persons, which reflects the Trinity, of course, within the family, husband, wife, and children. Right. You say, after calling into question whether liberties could survive, this had to do with Jefferson, in the minds of the people, they were seen as anything but gifts from God. Jefferson noted, Indeed, I tremble for my country when I reflect that God is just and that his justice cannot sleep forever. And you go on to say, the justice he feared was justice meted out in the absence of a proper understanding of the role of God in providing a foundation for these rights. And that's where we see the problem of this pulling this separation away and the kind of justice, quote unquote, becomes incredible injustice. Well, I think the framers understood the important relationship between faith and culture. Uh, they did not see that as a legal issue. They saw as a legal issue uh, church and state, but they were very committed to the values that faith brings to our culture. We talk about politics as the art of the possible. What determines what is possible? The culture, mm -hmm. the values that the culture has. And so this is where uh, we used to speak quite frequently in the Catholic uh, community about the evangelization of culture. Uh, I think too often we've given up on that, but mm -hmm. how we bring our values, our faith perspective into the culture is extremely important. And I think the founders realize that and uh, more mm -hmm. of us need to do so today. Just before we go, in the beginning of the book, uh, during your acknowledgments, one of them you mentioned is Andrew Walther. And I wanted mm. to give you a chance to maybe talk a little bit about him. Obviously, he came to be the president of EWTN News and had an untimely death. I just figured maybe to close out, you want to mention a little bit about him. Well, Andrew was a, Andrew Walther was a very close associate to me, helped me on a great many uh, projects at the Knights of Columbus, International Religious Liberty, Persecuted Christians being one. Uh, I was very sad to see him go, leave uh, the Knights of Columbus, but very happy that he was moving on to EWTN right. because as important as what he did with the Knights, uh, EWTN has a tremendous uh, role to play and responsibility in what we've been talking about, faith and culture. So um, we sorely miss Andrew and uh, we just uh, remain united in prayer and I know he's uh, praying for us. Amen. Well, thank you so much for your time, Pastor Supreme Knight. Carl Anderson, your book, These Liberties We Hold Sacred, Essays on Faith and Citizenship in the 21st Century. A very interesting read, available through the EWTN Religious Catalog, EWTNRC.com. For all things Catholic, I'm Doug Keck. Thank you so much. We'll see you next time right here on Bookmark.